Welcome to your spiritual broadcast with David Goddard. This podcast is about everything occult, alchemy, Kabbalah, angelic magic, ritual, and so much more. Join David Goddard and Benjamin Phillips as we explore the world of true spiritual living, dedicated to a better world. David is a spiritual teacher and author. He teaches worldwide and is the spiritual director of the Rising Phoenix Foundation. Here's David Goddard and me, Benjamin Phillips, with your spiritual broadcast. Welcome to your spiritual broadcast from the Rising Phoenix Foundation. With me, your host, on this occasion, David Goddard. The subject for today's broadcast is the Eleusinian Mysteries. This is a term you may have come across in your reading or studies, and if, if you haven't yet, you certainly will if you're looking at the magical Western path. But before we go anywhere, I want to deal with that strange term, the mysteries. Ooh, it sounds very mysterious. So you hear about the Western mysteries, or the mysteries of Osiris, etc., And yet of all the ancient mysteries, the one most mentioned is the topic of this podcast, the Eleusinian Mysteries. But let's say, what are the mysteries? Mysteries here does not mean a whodunit story. It does not mean some intellectual conundrum where with clues you have to work it out like a Dan Brown book. No, mysteries in this sense means something that points towards a spiritual, divine knowledge. That's what the mysteries are, and that was what the promise of the mysteries were. But I don't want to get into that too much yet, because it comes under the topic itself. And so to understand, the mysteries came about in the classical period around the Mediterranean basin, and here there were many mystery cults, the Eleusinia being the most famous, but there had been and still were concurrent the Egyptian mysteries, and mysteries to various gods in Egypt, so I mentioned the mysteries of Osiris, but there were the mysteries of Isis too, and in fact all the gods had them, and there were the mysteries of Dionysos, and the mysteries of Kibele, from Asia Minor, etc. What distinguished the mysteries from, you could say, everyday religious practice? Well, really, the closest thing today that still survives from that way of thinking is Freemasonry. In other words, the mysteries world was when somebody came into touch, into contact with somebody else who already belonged to a mystery cult, they had come to the conclusion that this person had certain knowledge. And by knowledge, it's not, I'm not just talking about secret arcane knowledge, although there is an element of that. It was also knowledge about that that person was more, more integrated and, and happier, seemed to have answers to some of the problems of life, which was regarded as sacred knowledge. And in the same way, that person could then apply to be accepted into the mysteries and if if that if they were accepted they would undergo initiation ceremonies etc so it's a big difference it's not like people of the period worshiping and going to the temples of particular gods because they were their local gods which is how most mainstream religion was in the period these are particular groups of men, and in some cases men and women, and in the Eleusinia that was the case for both sexes, of men and women who chose to and underwent these life-changing mysteries, which we'll talk about in a bit later. Now, there are comments about the Eleusinian mysteries throughout the classical period, in other words, through the 
period of Greece and of Rome, both the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, which comes afterwards. And we know because even some of the early church fathers had also been initiates, or at least wrote about the Eleusinian mysteries. Clement of Alexandria is probably the most famous, as was Oregon, and he too was from the Alexandrian Christian church. And interestingly enough, until recently, we knew more about the Eleusinian mysteries than we did about the Egyptian ones, even though the Egyptian ones were far older, and even though in all likelihood the Eleusinian mysteries were descended from the mysteries of Isis from Egypt. But the simple reason for it was, our scholars could still read Greek, they could translate it. Whereas the hieroglyphs, the picture writing of ancient Egypt, was not decoded until 1722. So until then, nothing was known about the Egyptian mysteries whatsoever. Now, why are the mysteries called Eleusinian? Well, this is the easiest part of this podcast. Because just near Athens, there's a small town called Eleusis. And the sacred story of these mysteries was set at Eleusis. Now, notice I've said sacred story. I haven't said a myth. And the reason I've done that is, most people nowadays still, if you say a myth, think you're talking about something that's false or made up or a legend. Whereas these were the sacred stories for thousands of men and women for hundreds and hundreds of years. It was their religious story, every bit as sacred to them as the Bible is to Christians, the Quran to Muslims, the Torah to Jews. It was the sacred story, the story of the creation and, in some cases, the, the healing, the redemption of creation. So I'm calling it sacred story. And the sacred story of Eleusis is this. It's based upon the religion of the ancient Greeks with the Olympian gods. And one of the most senior deities is the goddess Demeter. Demeter is what we would call it nowadays, the Earth Mother. She was responsible for the good earth and for the thriving of plants and animals. And in particular, because of course humans are often biased, in particular crops. Because you know, crops were the food of people. And so she was venerated for this. Now, Demeter had a daughter called Persephone. Um, I should just say at this point, there are, of course, the Roman names, the Latin name, names for these, where Persephone would be Prosperpina, and Demeter would be Ceres, from which our word cereal comes. Not a cereal story, a cereal crop, like oats or wheat. But we're going to use the Greek names Demeter and Persephone. And Persephone was in form like a teenage girl, because she was a younger aspect of her mother. And one day she was playing with her friends on the island of Sicily on the slopes of Mount Etna, which is a, a large volcano still active on Sicily. And she saw a lovely flower that she hadn't seen before and she tried to pick the flower but the roots were too strong, so she had to tug it with both hands, which she did. Whereupon, the earth shook, a cavern opened, and out came four jet-black horses, drawing a mighty chariot set with metals and jewels from the earth. And the rider in the chariot was Pluto, Hades, the god of the underworld 
one of the three great gods, brother in turn to both Zeus himself and to Poseidon, to Neptune of the seas. And Hades swept up Persephone and then turned the horses back down into the underworld, taking screaming Persephone with her, and then the earth shuts closed. So, it's closed. This is because volcanoes were often regarded by the ancients as doorways into the underworld. Not too surprising when you think what occasionally comes out of volcanoes, lava and ash, etc., and the rumblings. Now, Demeter, the mother of Persephone, who'd been going about her labours keeping the earth fertile and the crops healthy, heard the scream of her daughter and, as a goddess can, flew instantly to try and find her daughter. And she called to her, but there was no reply. And this was strange because, of course, gods can usually hear each other anywhere on the face of the earth and in some other places too. But whenever Demeter called Persephone, there was just silence, which was very worrying. So she went to uh, Sicily, but there was no sign of, of Persephone. And she went to all the usual places where her daughter used to play. But there was no joy. And anybody in the area she questioned hadn't seen Persephone. And Demeter's getting more and more worried, understandably. And then she starts to ask the great gods of nature if they have seen Persephone. And they haven't. Finally, she goes to her brother, Zeus. He has not seen her. And she also asks the god of the sun, Helios. And he had seen what had happened, because it had happened during the daytime. So, of course, the sun saw this. And he told her that Persephone had been abducted by Hades, who incidentally was also her uncle, because Demeter was the sister of Zeus, Poseidon, and uh, Pluto, Hades. These pantheons of gods are always interbred with each other, a bit like royal families, really. So she now knows who's got her, but she's terrified because it's well known that nobody taken into Hades can ever come out. And so she goes to her brother, Zeus again, and he re remembers the king of the gods and saying, I've now learnt that um, Hades has abducted Persephone. I want her back. Zeus speaks to his brother who refuses because he's become enamoured. In other words, he's fallen for Persephone. There's some indications that he probably had fallen for her before, hence the abduction in the first place. And he refuses to give her up. Now, you might think the king of the gods could compel him, but there's a trouble here. These three brothers were regarded as supreme in their own realms. So Zeus couldn't really tell Poseidon what to do as far as the seas and oceans were concerned. And the same with... Hades, as Lord of the Dead, Zeus had no authority there. And also, if Hades had um, become angry with Zeus, he could have refused, as he did on one occasion, to accept any more dead, which meant the earth would become overpopulated. And So it was always a kind of um, adjustment between these three. And in the case of Persephone, Hades refuses to release her. And Zeus has no alternative but to tell Demeter that that's what's happening. 
So Demeter's now completely devastated and she grieves continuously for her daughter and neglects the earth. And as a consequence, when the crops come to full harvest that year, afterwards when they wither with autumn and then die off in winter, the following year they are not renewed. Demeter will not put her hand of life to the vegetable kingdom. And so for years and years there is just this barren land. It's possible that this was an old folk memory of the Ice Age, which you find in many European cultures. But be that as it may, the earth groaned, so the animals died and humans died and the, the dead aren't being received into the underworld. And so the whole thing is a devastation. So finally, Zeus turns to Hermes, to Mercury, to see if there's any solution he could think of. And Zeus learns that if Persephone hasn't eaten anything while she was in the underworld, she can come back. It's a kind of loophole in the law. But if she has eaten something there, she can't be free completely of the underworld. And it turns out that while Persephone's been there, she had eaten six pomegranate seeds. Now, before I explain that, let me just say this, is during her time in the underworld, Persephone has undergone a character change because she's no longer a little teenager playing around with her friends with nothing to do. She's become queen of the underworld. She's queen of the dead and of the unborn, and that's a very important thing in both the mysteries and in magical practice too, that Persephone is queen of the unborn, those between incarnations, we would say. And she's got rather fond of of Hades. But be that as it may, when Hermes, Mercury, descends into the underworld before comes before the throne of Hades and Persephone to ask whether she's eaten. It is said that she's eaten six pomegranate seeds. And therefore, the solution becomes that Persephone will spend six months of the year with her mother in the upper world under the sun and she will spend six months of the year with her um, with her consort with Hermes as Queen of the Dead in Hades in the underworld in the place of the sun at midnight. And so you, you can see it is it is an explanation to an agricultural society of the why the seasons exist, why there is the cycle of seasons. There are the six months, three of spring and three of summer, followed by three of autumn, three of winter, and then repeated again, spring, summer, winter, etc. I should point out too, although it's not strictly part of Greek legend, nevertheless, it's still relevant, that the, the fruit of the pomegranate in Kabbalah is sacred to Eve, to Hava, Adam and Eve. It's, it's a symbol of Eve as the mother of all living. And those of you familiar with tarot will also see the pomegranate in tarot card 2, the high priestess. And in, in this sense, the pomegranate is a, is a symbol of great fertility. You know, if, you, if you've ever 
opened a or sliced a pomegranate, you'll see it's full of hundreds and hundreds of seeds in red, jewel-like moisture, and the seeds are inside. Um, using the symbolism of the ancients, it represents the the fertility of the All-Mother, all of these seeds, this blood, this moisture. And this is why it's been sacred to the goddesses down through time. And so um, Persephone then spends six months in the upper world. In other words, she, in other words, really, she's a, um, a corn spirit, you could say. And then six months under, under the ground in the land of shadows. Now, this may not sound very profound. Um, after all, any hunter-gatherer tribe has to learn about the seasons, otherwise they would starve and die out. But there is more to this legend, and it's this. While Demeter was wandering the earth desolate, where nobody could help her at all, she let herself, we would say, go to rack and ruin. In other words, she didn't wash or clean her hair or change her clothes. So she's still a majestic woman, but, you know, she's ragged and dirty and downcast. And somebody took pity on her and gave her hospitality. This person was a man called Triptolemus, who was king of a very small town or state called, yep, Eleusis. Triptolemus, king of Eleusis. Later on, after the mother and daughter goddesses had been reunited, and Persephone and Demeter are together, they both visit Triptolemus, and in thanksgiving, they teach him the cultivation of wheat, from which comes bread. Now we're going to see why this is so far-reaching. Because we have to overcome what so often happens, which is familiarity breeds contempt. Your Spiritual Broadcast is sponsored by the Rising Phoenix Foundation. Why not sign up for David Goddard's Letters to Your Spirit? It's free, and once a week you get a spiritually inspiring message to help you on your path of spiritual discovery. Letters to Your Spirit has many giveaways, free programs, and online workshops that is only shared with Rising Phoenix Foundation community members. Go to rpxf.org and sign up today. Wheat is a grass. Grass, or, or species of grass, grasses, as a plant, cover most of the land masses and feed two-thirds of all animal life forms on the planet. And notice also that the largest animals on land are all grass eaters, vegetation eaters. Look at the massive herds of buffaloes that once roamed America. Elephants are grass eaters. Giraffes, etc., etc., etc. Now, wheat is just a grass. Now, look at the number of flukes the number of accidents it would take if you didn't have insider knowledge. So here is some dried grass. So then by, I'll call it accident, the ears of the grass separate from the stalks. And then 
accidentally somebody begins to pound these ears and the outer shells of the, of the husks of the ears comes open and there's all this little white stuff inside. And then by accident somebody decides they're going to add some water to this. And they find it makes this kind of gooey substance that you can roll and twist and stretch. And then by accident you drop it into a fire. <laughs> and let's say you take it out before it goes black. You take it out while it's still golden and things. And you have bread. Well, so what? Some people may be thinking. I'll tell you so what. So what? Without bread, there would never have been any big cities on the face of this earth. This is why, you know, Roman emperors had to give the people games and bread. This is why everybody had to conquer Egypt because of its wheat harvest was so enormous. It was known as the breadbasket of the known world. Because only wealthy people and kings and hunters and warriors could ever have the lifestyle in which they could eat meat every single day. Most people couldn't. Until very recently, until the um, before the Second World War in, in Europe, and certainly for a good... 10 years afterwards, many, many working families only could have proper meat once a week on Sundays. The Sunday roast. And the rest of the week, if there was any left at all, it was put into sandwiches, two pieces of bread. And to this day, if you're in New York or London or any other Western city you can think of, how many people go out at lunchtime to get a sandwich? The bread bulks up the food. It has some nutritional value, but not a great deal. In fact, nowadays, some people advocate that you shouldn't eat the stuff, particularly if you want to lose weight. <laughs> so, um, cities needed bread and a, uh, and a supply. So I hope you can see the vast cultural and historic impact this would have had. But how does that make it religious? What, what's magical, mystical about it to form a mystery cult? Well, let's remember that what is often called magical or mystical is simply concealed knowledge. You know, there are aspects of magic that are now commonplace that 200 years ago weren't known except for a small amount of people who studied the magical art. Hypnosis is a classic example. But there was other things too. Remember, blacksmiths in the ancient tribes were regarded as wizards because they took these strange-looking rocks out of the earth and they, they melted them with fire and they hit them with hammers and they cooled them with water and they made these sharp edges to make plows to, to be able to furrow the fields and to make spears and swords to guard and kill your enemies. And in the same way, this mystery of, remember, you know, remember what we've said. Persephone represents the spirit of the of the of the cereal that is that's around for six months and then is gone. Now, what happened, of course, is they then applied this to the human condition. Remember the words of Jesus of Nazareth, unless an ear of wheat falls to the ground and dies. They took the symbolism of the wheat to signify that the human would die 
but in due season they would come back. This is why the mysteries as a whole and the Eleusinian mysteries in particular, I say in particular because we this is where the phrase comes from, it was said that the mysteries removed the fear of death. Now that is a huge claim to remove the fear of death. And it's still the claim today amongst those involved in the practice of the Western mysteries by practice. Notice I say practice. I don't say read about or watch TV shows about. But still it removes the fear of death. And but notice the language is precise. It doesn't say it removes the, the fear of dying. The ways to die, some can be very, very unpleasant, as we know, and fearful. It means to remove the fear of death itself, of death. In Western practice, it's taught that there are seven levels of withdrawal, of which the two earliest ones are trance and sleep. And the seventh level is death. Actually, the teaching has been put in plain sight in your lifetime. Those of you who um, have read the Harry Potter books, the very first one, the Philosopher's Stone, which was for some crazy reason called the Sorcerer's Stone in, in the USA. But that's another podcast. Um, at the very, very end... The stone has been uh, taken away from the person who had it. In this case, um, uh, Flamel, the French alchemist. And on the last page, I think it is, Harry turns to Dumbledore and says, but that means that Nicholas Flamel will now die, doesn't it? And Dumbledore says, yes. And he says, but isn't Flamel, doesn't he mind? Isn't he frightened? And Dumbledore says, no, Harry, dying is like this. You're in your home, you go up the stairs, you climb into your bed, rest your head on the pillow and close your eyes. Now that is, in fact, what death itself is like. And anybody, even people like me, who regularly do out-of-body work, know that the removal from the physical body, which most people would regard as death itself, is simply a shifting in consciousness. And how do I know that? How did I learn it? Because... I was taught in the mysteries, which are descended from the mysteries of Eleusis and of Osiris. But anyway, and you can see that there is this similarity between the Eleusinian mysteries, the wheat, and those of Osiris, because Osiris taught the ancient Egyptians agriculture. So these people who wandered around hunting on the edges, living for water on the edge of the Nile, now learnt how to cultivate wheat. As I said, it became the bread basket of Egypt, the wealthiest land for wheat in the entire known world of the time. And because they had to wait for periods while, while the wheat grew before they could harvest it, the pharaohs rather wisely gave them public works to undertake while they were waiting, and so they started to build pyramids and temples and wonders in stone that we can still see to this day. And there's a similarity, not identical, but a similarity between the the um, the role of Mother Isis and that of Demeter, also a mother goddess, is that uh, in the sacred story, when Osiris is killed, 
Isis wanders the earth looking for his body. And hence she is sometimes called the widow. And it's not without significance that one of the titles of Freemasons is Sons of the Widow. But the great beauty about the Eleusinian mysteries, even where it even goes beyond the Assyrian mysteries, is that in the Eleusinian mysteries, the saviour figure is feminine, it's not masculine. In the others of the period, the Assyrian mysteries, Osiris is a masculine figure, Dionysos is a masculine figure. But in the Eleusinian mysteries alone, the saviour is, is Persephone. She's the one. Remember, she goes down to the underworld. Well, let's put it another way. She's the one who lives for six months each year above and then dies to the land of sunlight and goes down into the twilight for six months. She is the saviour. That's a very empowering thing because you have to understand that all of Western civilization has always been built upon the proto-myth. By which I mean the prime story which has inspired and caused what we call Western civilization to come into being. What is that story? Death and resurrection. For 10,000 years in Egypt, death and the overcoming of death, resurrection, was the philosophical, medical, scientific, astronomical, religious and mystical fact of Egyptian civilization. In the time of the high culture of Greece and Rome, Rome of course borrowed Greek culture, but never mind, even in the Roman period, the Eleusinian mysteries con con continued. So even in the time of, even in, in that, you know, thousands of years, it was still death and resurrection through the imagery of Persephone and Demeter. And then for over the past 2,000 years, from the teachings and example of Jesus of Nazareth, again Western society has followed, has pinned its soul's heart trust into the reality of resurrection from the dead. And even in smaller cults, Freemasonry we've mentioned, Hiram Rabiff, the father of Freemasonry, is murdered and rises from the dead. In the Rosicrucian documents like Pharma Fraternitatis, Christian Rosenkrutz, the mystical figure of Rosicrucianism, rises from the dead. And you, so you see how these things all all fit into one another. For, for example, in the Eleusinian Mysteries, nothing is, was ever written about the rituals themselves because they couldn't know anything about them. But we do know from descriptions of some of the sacred processions where the vessels of the rituals were carried and they were carried in procession. And there was the sacred chest, the kalathos, the kalathos, a lidded chest, a lidded basket. And that's similar to the idea of Osiris, a sarcophagus. Remember, Osiris is a, is a wheat god. So the sarcophagus, the coffin, is really the container of the seeds of wheat for next year. Or in Catholic symbolism, it would be the ciborium, the vessel that, that contains the consecrated pieces of transformed bread 
where they are kept safely until it's time for them to be given out in communion. And this is fascinating because I recently went to the underwater city exhibition at London, which is those two Egyptian cities that had sunken down and been gone for hundreds of years. And there they actually have, for the first time, found again the great sacred vessels of Osiris, the sacred baskets, except being Egyptian, they go for stone, in which were stored these seeds from th that year's harvest, specially blessed in the mysteries and kept safe in the temples till they could be given to the farmers the next year for the sowing season. And it's important to know that the Eleusinian Mysteries was probably the most highly regarded religious festival of the ancient Greek and Roman world. Oh yes, there would have been special festivals for particular cities, like the procession of, of Pallas Athena in Athens, etc. But the Eleusinian Mysteries were venerated by all of Greece and by all of Rome. And I can give you two very good examples of this. One, not so pleasant, is a couple of Greek playwrights, hundreds of years apart, wrote plays in which they gave away or were considered to have given away too much about what happened in the sacred rituals of the Eleusinian, and so they were put to death. But here is the most telling one of all. Like a lot of these things, we have to put our minds into the mindset of the times. The period is Imperial Rome, when the Republic, which at least was fairly democratic, is now gone, and it's just the cult of the man with the most power and wealth in the world, the Emperor. I don't know if you know, but the word Emperor, Imperator, actually means war leader. And the Emperor of this particular period is Nero. You know, the nutcase who they say played the violin while Rome burnt. Anyway, he was one of the he's one of the baddies, one of the blood-soaked emperors. He and Caligula could have, you know, put on a play, the two of them. Anyway, the Eleusinian mysteries still went on. Romans would want to be, if they could, if they had well, of that turn of mind, would be, were, were initiated into uh, the Eleusinian Mysteries. And we know this because the writings of one of them still survive. The Golden Ass by Lucius Apidius. He doesn't tell you what went on in the Mysteries, but the story itself is about his journey into the Mysteries. Anyway, the Emperor Nero writes to the head of the um, writes to the head of the Eleusinian Mysteries the, the person who had the title of Hierophant you may, some of you may have heard the word it's Greek, it means revealer of sacred things the titles of the chief officers you could say, who held the sacred posts of the Eleusinian Mysteries still survive in some of the western groups who use ritual forms um, particularly those who are influenced by the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn, there the officers in the lodge, to use Freemasonic speak, all had the titles from the Eleusinian Mysteries, the Hierophant, the Horaeus, etc. Anyway, Nero, Emperor of Rome, writes to the Hierophant of the Mysteries of Eleusis, and asks to be initiated into the mysteries of Eleusis. The Hierophant writes back to him and refuses, giving the reason that Nero is a matricide, meaning he killed his mother. Being a matricide, um, uh, meant you could not be initiated into the mysteries at all. 
there were several things that, that barred entry into it. But matricide, of course, being murder of the mother, and considering it's a cult of the mother, was top of the list. But here's the point. Although everybody in Rome knew that Nero had killed his mother, you would never have said so. If you had voiced that opinion on the streets of Rome, you probably would not have seen another dawn. It was only when he was dead and gone that it became spoken about publicly. Everybody knew he'd killed his mother, but you never dreamed of saying it. If you were the king of a nearby city and you said it, the emperor would have your city razed to the ground. So this tells us an incredibly important fact. The Hierophant of the Mysteries of Eleusis must have been so sure of his power base that he can turn round to the most powerful political and military figure in the known world and call him a mother killer to his face virtually. And the, the Hierophant could do this because every Greek and Roman city for over a thousand years venerated and still venerated the mysteries of Eleusis. Now, I've spoken several times about um, the mysteries being secret and their procedures and their techniques being secret and things, and how the initiates believed that they would have transformative effects on them if they went through these ceremonies. But how did that occur? After all, were they just rituals rather similar to a modern-day church service? Well, it's quite different. Yes, there's the, there's the performance of the rituals. But a person who's being considered for initiation, they would be told the, the passions and loves of the gods, as it's called. They would be told the sacred story of the cultus they wish to belong to. The story of um, Demeter and Persephone, and they would be told it not just like as I have, as like repeating something. They would be doing it with, with feeling and with devotion and with adoration, because this was their religion. And as the person became more sensitized to it, they would then be taught visualization techniques so that they could visualize, use graced imagination to partake in the um, death and re resurrection of Persephone, of the passion of Demeter, of the gods, of the wailing of the earth, of the going away of life, and the great joy when the green shoots come up and the immortality of the soul is revealed. This idea of taking, I'm going to use modern terms, this idea of taking scripture and being taught to visualise it simultaneously was practised and is practised still by the Jesuits, the spiritual exercises of St Ignatius of Loyola. But this goes back to the ancient mysteries. And this made a big difference. It, well, I won't say it did. I'll speak from what I know. It does make a big difference. It makes a huge difference between just listening to the story being told and to engaging in it with your imagination. And of course, the more trained you are, the stronger and clearer the imagination is. And so therefore, you were no longer just watching it was as if you were one of the cast in a play that's happening. You played the part. And you identified with the god. Because all of these gods represent aspects of ourselves. The same way as in Kabbalah, the Sephiroth represent aspects of ourselves. And so you could identify with the god. And this had the effect of stimulating the candidate's link with their own higher self with their divine self. Why will I say that? I will say that because the higher self 
is the eternal aspect. It's the totality of the harvest of golden wisdom that we have had in our journeys in our lives. So whenever you work with a dying and rising God, whether you call it Osiris or Demeter, Persephone or Yeshua or Dionysus and things, what's happening is you're beginning more and more to see the see the journey of life after life after life. And therefore you begin, at first you don't even know it's happening, you begin to focus upon the higher self, that which isn't subject to birth or to death. Now you may say, how can I make this claim? Because I've seen it happen many times. This kind of initiation is still used in modern-day mystery schools and in Freemasonry, as I've said, of the Master Masons going through death and rebirth. And it is the same method as is used in the ceremonial empowerments of Tibetan Buddhism to this very day. Now, of course, there are many fraudulent organisations claiming this, but then that's always been the case in Tibet too. There have been frauds. But this is, this is how all seekers for wisdom learn discernment. It used to be said, that discernment is the first virtue on the path. And of course, with these initiations, which lead to a spiritual transmission and to a new state of consciousness, of course, there are occasions where the initiation doesn't take. And this, but this happened in the ancient world too. To use a symbolic language, the Eleusinian mysteries, some individuals were not properly prepared. And so the seed of light, which is the transmission in an initiation, falls onto stony ground. So you can see what Jesus' parable is about. The scattering of the seed of Gnosis. You know, but some cases it, it falls on stone, some cases it falls upon nettles and the weeds choke it. In other words, the person has to be prepared, go through preparative training and purification if the seed of light is going to take root and they get, are going to become consciously immortal. And so on the occasions when it works well, when the seed of light planted in the person, is then watered by compassion and the sunlight of meditation shines on it, then the golden wheat of wisdom will ripen and in due season it will become the bread of angels, everlasting life. <laughs>